hear the inerrant word which was written for our edification. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now, this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accomplished who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these... Two, you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. It is our desire that we would respond appropriately to it. We pray that you would quicken the word to our heart with faith and that you would enable us to be hearers and doers of it and to rejoice in it. Father, I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully bring this word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> because it's been a little while since I've been in the book of Acts, I thought I would do a little bit of review so you can see the sermon in the context of what we have covered so far. In verses 1 through 3, we looked at the passion for the kingdom that Christ displayed. And I say it was passion because he spends his last 40 days talking to his disciples about the kingdom. Usually, your last days, you know, that you spend with people that you love, you, you're going to talk about those things are, that are important. And if you are not passionate about the kingdom, you don't have the same priorities that Jesus does. Uh, the book of Acts is a kingdom document. Now, there are a lot of people out there who teach as if the book of Acts is anything but kingdom. And uh, I have books in my library that Glenn will probably now try to hunt down and have me toss. Uh, he's been the tosser because I've been the big pack rat. But uh, these books have said that Christ postponed the kingdom and what he's talking about in those first three verses, he was talking about something way future at the end of, um, you know, this age. And we need to think about that a little bit because why would Jesus spend his last precious 40 days with his disciples talking to them about something utterly irrelevant to their lives if indeed the book of Acts is not a kingdom document? Um, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, maybe it would pique their curiosity about the future, but if it's not relevant, why would he do that? Now, in contrast, we said no. The book of Acts starts with the preaching of the kingdom. The last verse of the book of Acts is Paul preaching the kingdom, and in between, every chapter is dealing with the kingdom of God, and we saw there are practical ramifications of that. Then in verses 4 through 8, we looked at the incredible plan 
that the Father had for this kingdom, the promise of the Father. We saw the power of the kingdom, that's the Holy Spirit. We saw the rule of Jesus as he is seated at the right hand of the Father. We saw the role that Israel is to play in God's majestic scheme of things. And then we looked at how the kingdom has to conquer every part of this globe before Christ comes back. And it really is uh, something that is a transforming, a very gripping theology. Once you understand the purposes of this book, it'll put a fire under your bones. You cannot believe those doctrines and avoid applying the whole of Scripture to the whole of life. Then in verses 9 through 11, we looked specifically at the ascension of Christ to his throne. Now, it bookmarks the... Uh, ascension of Christ, and then at the end of history, the second coming of Christ, and it indicates uh, what is going to happen between there. Jesus must, as 1 Corinthians 15 words, that he must remain at the right hand of the Father until he has put all enemies under his feet. Now, that too is something that puts fire in your bones when you realize that, boy, this is a time not for fear and trepidation, but of the increase of his kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. Then in verses 12 through 26, we've already had two sermons showing the Father's preparations for Pentecost. And we looked at internal preparations uh, a couple sermons ago, and we desperately need those internal preparations that God was performing. And then the last sermon, we began to look at God's Historia Salutis. That was the outward, the historical preparations that had to come to pass before Pentecost. For example, we saw why it was necessary that there be 12 apostles, why it was necessary they go and return to Jerusalem, even though Jerusalem was a dangerous place for them to stay. Why specifically they had to stay, as the last verse in the Gospel of Luke words it, they had to stay continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Well, the reason for that is the Spirit had to be poured out in the temple to fulfill kingdom prophecy. And we looked at all kinds of different reasons uh, in Acts 1 and elsewhere to indicate that. But just one hint, verse 12, we won't repeat it, but they're a Sabbath day's journey from Uh, Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, Sabbath day's journey, we know exactly what that was, 2,000 cubits, and any Jew who was reading that knew that when you're traveling from the Mount of Olives to to Jerusalem, there aren't any buildings out there, because there's the wall, and 2,000 cubits takes you right to the temple. And so uh, we we, we showed uh, several reasons why we believe that the upper room was on the south side of the temple complex where they were staying. The reason for this is this is a fulfillment of prophecy in the minor prophets as well as in Ezekiel. And uh, Ezekiel uh, had said that just as the Spirit had just left the south side of the temple in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, and the Spirit had come upon a small remnant of faithful Jewish believers, had transformed them into a new Israel, into a new temple. He was going to do the same thing in the new covenant. He was going to leave the old temple, come upon believers, and those believers would be transformed into a new Israel and into a new temple. Not made with physical stones, obviously, but spiritual stones, uh, human beings. And so that's where I want to pick up. It's at verse 15. And today's sermon is going to be a little bit different. You're going to have to bear with me because uh, I need to deal with five controversies that if you understand these controversies right, I think it'll open up the book of Acts in a marvelous way to you. And I've listed those for you in your handout. And if you don't have the handouts, there's extras on the back table. But uh, let me just quickly go through 
uh, the controversies. First of all, uh, there is the controversy of why Peter uh, has to lead there. Uh, this has been a chapter that uh, the Roman Catholic Church has heavily appealed to, to talk about the supremacy of Peter and the supremacy of the papacy. So we'll just look briefly at that. Then there's the controversy of 120. People point out from 1 Corinthians 15 and elsewhere, there was tons more people than 120. Uh, at just one time, pre just previous to this, there were 500 believers that met together with the resurrected Christ. And that appears that there were more than those 500. So why the 120 here? Then there's the controversy of how is it that Mark and Luke and James and Jude, none of whom were apostles, could write scripture books. That's troubled many people. And I think Acts chapter 1 has an answer, and it's a beautiful answer as to why that is the case. And then lastly, there's the question of whether the apostles and the prophets continue today. And from the title of the sermon... Um, I think you can guess that my answer is uh, no, that they do not. They are a foundation and they are an incredibly wonderful, incredibly necessary foundation for the church. So let's start at verse 15 and try to answer these questions. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Now, there are some who think Peter was given the privilege of being the spokesman and the pillar of the church there in Jerusalem because he was rock solid. Here's a, here's a man, you know, that you cannot sway. After all, didn't Jesus say to Peter, whose name means rock, uh, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I mean, that's standard Roman Catholic interpretation. It's Peter, it's the rock who gets things going. He's the foundation. And um, believe it or not, there is a little bit of truth to that interpretation. Not a whole lot, but there's a little bit of truth mixed in with some error. Um, Peter was called the rock, not because he was strong, because boy, did he fail. He failed big time, but because God's final revelation came through Peter and the apostles and the prophets, and uh, that's a direction that um, the Roman Catholic Church does not want to go. And a number of Reformed people have said, you know, we have done a disservice by overreacting to the Roman Catholics and saying, this has nothing to do, and Matthew 16 is the passage, Matthew 16, 18. See, that has nothing to do with Peter. Jesus is the rock. Isn't he called the rock elsewhere in Scripture? He is the rock, and this is not referring to Peter. But several Reformed writers said, no, that's, oh, that's an overreaction. The passage says literally, and I also say to you that you are Peter, literally, you are a rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Well, it sure sounds like he's talking to Peter, doesn't it? Knox Chamblin uh, from Reformed Seminary says, Jesus identifies himself in that passage as the builder, not the rock. Now, in other passages, yes, he is the rock, but here he is the builder, and the person who is the rock is Peter. Actually, he's not the rock, he's a rock. And the reason I say he's a rock in the Greek is because there's a whole bunch of other rocks in this foundation, namely the apostles and the prophets who are going to be constituted in Acts chapter 1. And because they are a foundation, there can be no apostolic succession, as the Roman Catholic Church insists that there has been. Once you've laid the foundation, you start building the building. You don't keep building the foundation throughout history. No, there was a foundation that was laid, and upon that foundation, there's going to be a superstructure that's going to be made. And because Roman Catholics have made such a big deal about this, I want you to turn with me to a couple of passages. Revelation 21, 
And there's quite a number of others you could look at, but this is a beautiful description of the bride of Jesus Christ using the imagery of the New Jerusalem. And what Roman Catholics have said is that there's only one foundation, there's only one vicar of Christ, it was Peter, and when he dies, he passes it on, and then there's only one vicar of Christ, and it's always the Pope. But take a look at Revelation 21, and um, uh, look at, what verse is it? 21 verse 14. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Peter's not the only foundation stone upon which Jesus is building. This says there are twelve foundations, and there's no hint that that foundation keeps getting passed from pope to pope. Turn with me to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20. And this uses a couple of metaphors to describe the church. It uses a nation... Uh, uses that of a household, of a temple that's being built up. And beginning at verse 19 of Ephesians 2, it says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Did you get that there? On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. <clears throat> and uh, so in this passage here, it indicates that uh, not only is the foundation made up of the apostles, it's made up of the prophets, and it's made up of Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. We're going to re- uh, come back to that phrase, chief cornerstone. Now, what's going on in Acts 1 through 2 is the laying down of the foundation of the church. If, indeed, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation, you wouldn't expect new prophets and new apostles to pop up in the 20th century and the 21st century any more than you would expect new chief cornerstones popping up. Uh, Jesus was crucified once and for all. He gave his final revelation uh, back then. And so uh, what we're going to be seeing is this is a once and for all uh, deposit that the Lord gives. Peter was a rock, not as a paradigm for 20th century apostles. And he was called a rock, not because he was strong in himself, but because the Lord was choosing to bring revelation through him. And uh, we're going to be looking uh, at a a couple of passages that indicate that in himself, he was not rock solid as all. In fact, I want you to turn with me to Matthew 16, where this controversy starts. Matthew 16, and let's begin reading at verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Oh, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. His testimony was a revealed testimony. It came from the Father. 
He goes on, he says, I also say to you that you are Peter, or you are a rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, the other apostles were also given the keys of the kingdom, but that's just a side point. The main point here is that Peter is not called a rock because he's stable and solid. Three verses later, look at verse 23, when he fears Jesus going to the cross, what does Jesus say to him? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. So he's not looking very much like a rock there. It was only when Peter was a vehicle of the Father's revelation that he was acting as a rock. When he acts as Simon Barjona, he's not a rock. When he acts as Peter, the receiver of the Father's revelation, he is a rock. Uh, not much after this, Christ says to Simon, 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 indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, Strengthen your brethren. That's Luke twenty-two thirty-two. So he wasn't a superman. In fact, he was. He failed. He had to repent. He had to return to the Lord, and so did the others. And he had to strengthen his brethren. I think one of the reasons that Peter is chosen is because he is such a marvelous testimony to God's mercy and God's grace. You know, one of the things we have a tendency to do is to excuse why we don't have to do the things God expects us to do. Because you know, I'm not like the apostles. You know, I can't do it. I'm weak. And yet, Peter stands as a testimony that God can forgive us of our denials, even as he forgave Peter, and he can strengthen us and help us to overcome our fears and overcome our weaknesses, just like he helped Peter to overcome uh, his weakness. And so the church was not successful because Peter built it, as the Romanists say, it's because Jesus built it. And he built Peter, and he built everything else that's of any enduring value. Uh, and boy, did it need a lot of building as well, because it starts off real small. It starts as few, then many, then multitudes, then myriads. And finally, there's a great company that's turning the world upside down. But here's the bottom line point. It's the revelation of the Father and that alone that makes Peter, the apostles and the prophets that are going to be constituted in Acts chapter 2, the foundation for the church. And that foundation, which been preserved for us here in the Bible, this is a foundation you can bank on. It is secure. It is something that stands up in the midst of any trial. Now, this Peter, this Petros, this rock stands up in the midst of the disciples. Verse 15 continues, altogether, the number of names was about 120. He doesn't say 120 persons, even though it is that. He says 120 names, and that's a detail I think we should not miss. Uh, 120 was the minimum number of males that could constitute a separate Jewish community complete with a ruling uh, a council. And they had to subscribe their names. They had to write out their names in order to be able to do that. I think that's the reason for the mention of the names here. Ten men could form a synagogue, but we got enough men here to form 12 synagogues. And I believe that Luke gives us hints that there were people from every tribe of the nation of Israel that were represented in uh, this, uh, this upper room. And so this is really the beginning of a new Israel. Now, I'm not going to beat this to death, but if you turn with me to Luke 22, these are the words of Jesus at the Last Supper. 
And he's already given the institution, talked about the supper. And if you look at Luke 22, uh, 28 through 30, he says, But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. So he's not talking about heaven because he's talking about the Lord's table in context. They're eating the Lord's table in his kingdom. And sit on thrones. Who sits on thrones? Princes do, right? And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, James, the book of James, which is addressed to believers, is addressed to the twelve tribes which were scattered abroad. And so the early church was composed of the remnant of Israel, just as Ezekiel said that it would be. And so back to our text in Acts chapter 1, ten males were the minimum to form a synagogue. 120 were the minimum to form a Jewish community complete with a ruling council. And of all 12 tribes were represented, as Luke has already given hints that that was exactly the case, this has huge significance. You may remember words from Matthew 21, verse 43, where Jesus says that he was going to take the kingdom from Israel and he was going to give it to a nation, not nations. Many people interpret it, okay, he's taking it from Israel, he's going to give it to all kinds of nations. No, he's going to take it from Israel and he's going to give the kingdom to a nation bearing the fruits of that kingdom. And that's exactly what is happening in this chapter and in chapter 2. Just as the tiny remnant of Israel and Babylon, when Ezekiel was making the prophecy, had the Spirit come upon them, and they were reconstituted as a new Israel, and looking back at the land of Palestine, he called them Sodom and Egypt. They're not the true Israel. So too, now in the New Testament, what happens is God is reconstituting a new Israel, and what does Revelation call Jerusalem, the city where also our Lord was crucified? He calls them Sodom and Egypt. And so he is raising up a, 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 a new people called the Israel. Who were Gentiles grafted into? According to Romans 11, they're grafted into the olive tree, right? They're grafted back into the Israel of God. And so every time a Gentile becomes saved, he becomes a Jew, a spiritual Jew. This happened in the Old Testament too. Read in Esther, for example, when the remnant was out and they were constituted a new Israel, it says many Gentiles became Jews. It wasn't an ethnic thing. It was a religious thing. Now, when you begin to understand that, there's a whole pile of controversies later on in the book of, of Acts that all of a sudden come to light. And you say, oh, now I understand what they were fighting about. Now I understand why they were fighting over circumcision. They were saying, what do you mean he's in Israel? What do you mean he's a Jew? He's not circumcised. And God was making these changes, and they were hugely controversial because they recognized they had been reconstituted as the, the new Israel of God. It was the beginnings of the kingdom. Now, Peter addresses this assembly of 120 men who had subscribed their names. He calls them men and brethren. I've got a commentary that's very troubled over Luke's words, claims um, that it shows chauvinism. It really is not. It really is not. But the commentary says, an insoluble obstacle to any translation hoping to be gender inclusive is Luke's persistent habit of using men, andres, which means males, so frequently in Acts narrative as here. Now, that's, that's not chauvinism. This is assuming patriarchy. It's saying that the males were going to be voting. 
uh, not the, the, the females and, the, and the, the children. And I think, really, in our church, to be biblical, there needs to be one vote per household. I mean, that's the way it was always done. But all through this passage, he's addressing the heads of the households. He did not neglect the women. He's already mentioned them in verse 14. We've dealt with that. Very important part to play uh, in the kingdom. But here he's addressing who are going to be the leaders of this kingdom. And the reason Luke switches there to the community heads is um, uh, he, he's, he's going to later, we're going to be seeing hints and acts, that there is many more people that were involved, but the 120 were not all the Christians available. 1 Corinthians 15, I think, makes that abundantly clear. These were the leaders of the new Israel. I'm kind of building a case here, a little point by point, so bear with me. These were the men who had continued with Christ from the beginning. This includes the 70 disciples sent out just like the 12 were. And I believe that all of the writers of Scripture and all of the prophets who were distributed to the various churches throughout the empire, all of them, with the exception of Paul, were constituted in Acts chapter 2. Um, Paul says that he was the exception. He was an apostle born out of due time. The reason he was born out of due time is because the due time was for it to happen at Pentecost. He was um, made an apostle six months later. Now, with that as a background, I think you can understand why Peter says that someone has to replace Judas because the Spirit is going to be prophesied to be poured out upon the 12 princes of Israel. So, if we don't have 12 princes, uh, how is this prophecy going to be fulfilled? It could not wait. And remember, we've already uh, read in Luke 22, Jesus calls the apostles, indicates that they are princes, uh, on, uh, judging Israel on thrones. And so let's look at the question of Matthias, and then we're going to start to fly. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 16 through 22. Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Let me point out, many, many people have felt that Peter made him, blew it here. He made a mistake. He was going ahead of the Lord, and uh, uh, he should not have gone ahead and constituted Matthias as the twelfth apostle. Their proof is that Paul is called an apostle. He's only called an apostle one time. But he is called an apostle. He's the last of the apostles. And if that's the case, since Revelation says there's only 12 gates that have the names of the apostles on it, and only 12 foundations that have their names on it, it's got to be Paul. And uh, so I, what I want to do is I want to go through and show how this was perfectly proper. In fact, it was absolutely necessary first. Peter thought he was following the Spirit's authority. 
whether you think he's wrong or not, he's convinced he was following the Lord's authority. He says in verse 16, this scripture, and he's referring to Psalm 41.9, this scripture had to be fulfilled. There was no other option. Based on Psalm 109, verse 8, Peter says in verse 22, therefore one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. He was needed as a witness against apostate Israel as this new Israel is constituted. Second, there is not the slightest hint from Luke that he thinks Peter is wrong. He reports Peter's words as authoritative words. There's no apology. There's no retraction. There's no indication he's embarrassed by this. No indication this was a bad move. And we need to keep in mind, you might even want to write this verse down, that Peter had been trained for 40 days with his mind finally opened. Luke 24, verse 45 says about Jesus, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scripture. So Peter knows what he's talking about. Jesus has trained him. He's already had the Spirit breathed upon him provisionally. And so when Luke records everything's hunky-dory, we should assume everything is hunky-dory. Thirdly, this is not just silence on Luke's part, but positive affirmation is given as well. Look at verse 26. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So with Judas gone, the twelve is diminished to eleven, and now Matthias is numbered with this eleven, which brings it up to twelve. Now take a look at the same language in Acts 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice. Now, earlier you have Matthias with the eleven. Now you have Peter with the eleven, and the word with means there is eleven besides him. If there is eleven besides Peter, it includes Matthias. There's further confirmation. Look at Acts 6, verse 2. Then the twelve, not the eleven, but then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So Luke is not recording they thought that there were 12 apostles. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is saying there were 12 apostles. And that was before Paul was converted. So ipso facto, uh, Matthias is the 12th apostle. Fifth, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 9, where Paul uh, is, uh, you know, the last of the apostles, he distinguishes his apostleship from the 12, from the rest. It says, after... That he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Now, born out of due time because he didn't meet the criteria that's laid out in Acts chapter 1, that you have to have um, um, been ministered to by Jesus for three years, you had to have seen his resurrection, you had to be directly called by him and and Paul says, hey, I've had all three, but boy, it wasn't at the same time as the others did. He was um, called by God. He saw his, uh, Jesus' resurrection. And in Galatians, I think it's 1.18, maybe, Galatians 1, anyway, he says that for three years he was trained by Christ in Saudi Arabia. But he recognizes I wasn't born when all of the other apostles were born. I wasn't constituted that. It was out of due time. Sometimes people bring up the objection that if Matthias was indeed an apostle, how come he's not mentioned later on in the book of Acts? Uh, and that really does not bear much weight. We've already seen he's mentioned not by name, but by number in Acts 2.14 and in chapter 6, verse 2. But even if he wasn't, it really doesn't matter. Because just think of the other apostles. The only other apostles after Acts chapter 2 that are mentioned 
are Peter, James, John, and Philip. So that doesn't prove a thing. So I think what is happening is this. There were 82 apostles altogether. Now, before you start looking cross-eyed at me, let me explain how I, I, I come to this. In Luke 9, it mentions 12 apostles being commissioned by the Lord to represent him and to speak in his name so that when they spoke, Jesus is speaking. They represent him. He charismatically gifts them so that they can heal, cast out demons, do other miracles. And then you look in the next chapter, Luke chapter 10, he does exactly the same thing with 70 additional people who are commissioned to speak in his name. In other words, they're apostles. They do speak in his name. They have the same authority as, as the others. Luke 10, verse 16. Here's what Jesus says. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. That is infallible representation. Just as Jesus represents the Father, he says, these 70 are going to represent him. They are going to speak for him. They're going to speak in his name. And so in every sense of the term, they were apostles. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why there's so many additional apostles beyond the 12 that are mentioned in the book of Acts. You may not have realized that, but there are several. Um, they were charismatically gifted in the same way that the, the 12 were. And so when Judas loses his office as being among the 12, what happens is they take one of the 70 apostles and put him into the position of 12. That's Matthias. And the reason I say it was one of the 70 is because of 21 through 23. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. And then they proposed Matthias. So I don't think you could get a clearer testimony of the fact that he was one of the 70. So now we have 12 apostles, each of whom represents one of the 12 tribes of Israel. That leaves an uneven... They're all Galileans, by the way, but the rest of the people come from all of the different tribes. And that leaves an uneven number of charismatically endowed leaders... Um, uh, the second group. In the Old Testament, not only did you have the 12 princes that the Lord blessed, but you had 70 elders that the Spirit came down upon and they prophesied, right? So now we've got an uneven number. There needs to be the 12 apostles plus the 70 elders who are also uh, endowed by the Spirit. And so what happens is that Paul was chosen by God six months later so we have 12, and now the number 70 is complete. Still born out of due time. Everybody else was constituted as part of that foundation, but this last stone was plugged in later. And so if you wondered, why in the world could Mark and Luke write Scripture when they weren't part of the 12? We say, well, they were, they were part of the band of 70 apostles. Both Luke and Mark were Levites who were included in the 70 apostles. And either Luke, Mark, or Barnabas, who also was an apostle, who also was, um, uh, you know, a Levite, um, any one of them could have reserved the temple precincts, especially Solomon's porch, throughout Christ's three-and-a-half-year ministry. Many people wonder, how in the world was it that Jesus, anytime he wanted to, went into this temple and he had this big area reserved for him that he could preach at? That had to be a Levitical function to reserve those sections. Well, any one of those three men would have been able to do that. And so Luke, no problem in writing the Scripture. He speaks inspiredly by the Lord. And let me just read that Luke 10 passage again. 
He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Infallible representation. Of five verses later, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Okay, They had, were vehicles of revelation. They're still babes in themselves. They're not rocks. In themselves, they're babies. But when they are bearers of the divine revelation, they do stand in a foundational place. He goes on. He says, Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. So Jesus is the primary vehicle of revelation. He's the chief cornerstone. But the sentence goes on to say, And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then he goes on to say, You know, many prophets in the Old Testament wished they had what, you're go what you are having, what you're going to be having. Many kings wished that they had what you're going to be having. Luke has apostolic infallible function, and Mark does as well because they were of the 70. So you've got the 12, you've got the 70, but there's still more people there. There's 120 men that he is addressing. What happens to them? Well, they are all constituted part of the inspired prophetic band in Acts chapter 2. And so if you've ever been wondering, how come James and Jude, both of whom were brothers of Jesus, they weren't even converted till after his resurrection. They weren't part of the 12. They weren't part of the 70. How come they can write scripture? It's because they were part of this this band of brothers, this band of prophets that God put together. If you look at verse 14, you'll see that the brothers of Jesus are there. They're present. What happens to them in Acts 2? Look at Acts 2, verse 1. Last phrase says that they were all with one accord in one place. So they're all present. Verse 4 says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they are given utterance by the Spirit. And look at the interpretation in verses 17 through 21. And it shall come to pass in the last days. Actually, I should probably comment on that. I believe that the last days he is referring to are the last days of the Old Covenant. The last days of the temple of Jerusalem, the last days of the priesthood, the last days of all of those Levitical functions. And it's in that context. We need to look at that. It's an Old Testament prophecy. Look at it from an Old Testament perspective of last days rather than from our perspective. So he says, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And we're going to look at that more at a later date. But it's clear they were prophets just as surely as David is called a prophet in verse 30. Now, what, what's significant about that? Well, Wayne Grudem and other charismatics say that there is a huge difference between New Testament prophets and Old Testament prophets. Uh, they say the apostles correspond to Old Testament prophets. They're infallible. Old Testament prophets are infallible. But New Testament prophets, no. The word prophet does not refer to an infallible person. They can make mistakes. They can practice. They can grow in their ability to prophesy. And I have to say simply, I'm sorry. That is absolutely false. You read through the book of Acts, and you will find side by side Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets referred to. The word means the same thing. It's an office that carries with it infallible communication of God's truths. And so I think we do have to uh, confront that as, as great and wonderful as some of these people are. 
that claim there uh, continues to be uh, New Testament um, uh, prophecy that is different. They're mixed together. Ephesians 2, and so I would say no problem for James and Jude to write Scripture. They're constituted as part of those prophets. Ephesians 2.20 describes the church as having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So Jesus is the final revelation, according to Hebrews 1, and he commissions a group of 120 foundation stones to speak and to write in his name. Once that foundation is laid, the only authority that the church can go to is the Bible. It's the Scriptures. Now, next week, I'm going to try to finish off chapter 1. There's a lot of material I've, uh, I haven't covered. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to contrast Peter, who denied the Lord, and Judas, who denied the Lord, and look at the vast difference between the two and the difference between their repentances. But um, let me end today by giving at least a couple of Old Testament references that prophesied that before the last days of Jerusalem, God would finish the Bible and he would close up Revelation. And this is not an academic question. This strikes at the heart of the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, It's very, very important. The infallibility of the Scripture is a cure to so many errors in the church. Now, this is not to say that God does not continue to reveal himself today. I believe he does. Of course he reveals himself. Uh, He puts the law of God on pagans' hearts. He puts the law of God on our hearts, and he calls it a revelation. It's the opening of their understandings. But there is no more inspired revelation, okay? No more infallible revelation, Um, just general. Now, turn first to Daniel chapter 9. And because of uh, time, I'm going to have to be brief. But Daniel 9 and verse 2 starts with Daniel realizing that the 70 weeks of prophesied exile have come to a close. They've already been in Babylon for 70 years. And the reason they were in Babylon for 70 years is that there were 70 Sabbath years that they had failed to let the land lie fallow. Okay, there's not just Sabbath weeks of days, but there is Sabbath weeks of years, with every seventh year being a Sabbath year where they had to let the land lie fallow. He says, because you didn't do that, for the number of times you've broken the Sabbath, yearly Sabbath, I'm going to cast you into exile. Okay, that's come to an end. And now, based on that, he starts a new prophecy, and that starts at verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined. And almost every Bible-believing commentary agrees he's talking about weeks of years here, not weeks of days. Now, if there are 70 weeks, and each of those weeks is constituted of years, or as the margin has it, 77s, and they're all years, what's 70 times 7? It's 490. So it's a 490-year period, and at the end of that period, he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. That's in verses 26 through 27. That happened in 27 AD. So that's the context. Now look at verse 24, at what has to happen before Jerusalem is destroyed. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Here's the first thing. First, to finish the transgression. Second, to make an end of sins. Third, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Fourth, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Fifth, to seal up vision and prophecy. And sixth, to anoint the most holy. Now, the phrase to seal up vision and prophecy means an ending of all inspired revelation. Literally, it's to seal up vision and prophet. 
Actually, in the New King James, this is the only time that that word not be is translated prophecy. It's everywhere else translated prophet. So literally, it's to seal up vision and prophet. So what he's saying is, both the vehicle of revelation, that's the prophet, and the revelation itself, that's the vision, has been sealed up, closed off, finished, terminated, there will be no more, is what he is saying in that phrase. In fact, the, the word to seal up, just two phrases earlier, is translated to make an end of to make an end of sins. So you could translate this to make an end of vision and profit. So there's one clear prophecy that before Jerusalem is destroyed, there's going to be an ending of prophecy. Now turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8. Now Isaiah 8 and Isaiah chapter 9 are quoted over and over again in the New Testament as referring to the first century A.D. And chapter 8 especially is used to talk about God's casting away of Israel in 70 A.D., in that context, chapter 8, verse 16 says, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Now, testimony and law are synonyms for inspired revelation. And this passage is saying it's going to be sealed up, it's going to be bound, it's going to be closed, it's going to be ended in the first century A.D. After the war of 70 A.D. that's being described here, verse 19 says, Any claim to... Ins to um, inspired revelation is demonic. As verse 19, then verse 20 says, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So the scriptures forever will be the only judge of all other revelation. So saying, okay, we have uh, revelation of God's law in our hearts. But that does not the judge of the Bible. You can't say, well, I don't need to keep the Sabbath. I don't need to do this or that because I'm not convicted of it. Well, your conscience is a rascally little thing that likes to not be convicted by things. And so uh, the fact that you are not subjectively convinced by something means nothing. It is the Bible that is the judge of your inward revelation of the law written on your heart or any other illumination that you may have, not your subjective revelation, the judge of the Scriptures. That's what he's saying here. He's saying to the law and to the testimony, which have already been bound up and sealed and closed off, right? He's talking about the Scriptures. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Now, there are other Old Testament passages we could point to, like Zechariah 13, which promises, quote, the prophets, dot, 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 I will cause to pass away from the earth. And he says, after that period of time, anyone who claims to be a prophet is a deceiver, is a liar. That's Zechariah 13. Or Joel 2, which says that before the destruction of Jerusalem during the last days, God was going to pour out one last period of prophecy. And so it's significant that Hebrews 1 says, God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in times past by the fathers to the, to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. And of course, when the apostles speak, Christ speaks. The 70 were his representatives. And the first century was expected to be a final period of prophecy. Now, there are many other similar passages. I just want to look at verse 8. Love never fails, or you could translate it, never ends or ceases. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Literally, they will cease, they will completely pass away, they will be done away with. He goes on, whether there are tongues, they will cease. And the Greek word is different there, actually, and many people say it's a gradual petering out, gradual ceasing. 
Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. And the kind of knowledge he's referring to is the revelational knowledge of verse 2. And verse 2, the communication of propositional statements that were given to prophets. Uh, in any case, there's a clear reference. At some point, prophecies will fail or cease or completely end. Uh, he goes on, he says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect, or as the margin words it, when that which is complete has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And I believe the complete he is referring to is the completeness of his revelation, the completed canon. Now, you may not buy that, but even if you don't buy it, uh, you have to interpret this in light of Isaiah 8, in light of Daniel 9, and say, okay, it ceases in 70 A.D., now, I am not one who believes that all charismatic gifts have passed away or all spiritual gifts have passed away. Only the foundational ones, I think, have clearly passed away. And Ephesians 2 makes that clear, that it's apostleship and prophecy as part of the foundation. Now, let's just end by asking, what difference does all of this make? Well, first of all, it keeps us from getting sucked in by all of the supposed prophets that are running around telling people what to do. Uh, there are apostles in various churches that people say, you don't question an apostle. Uh, there are prophets down in Kansas City who um, um, say what God's will for the church is, you know, and who predict the future. Now, here's the odd thing, is that even the best of these prophets get it wrong many, many times. They say they've got a pretty good success record, but so do some pagan prophets who are good guessers of the future too. Um, the scripture indicates that there has to be a 100% success record or it is a false prophecy and it is a false prophet. God does not allow for halfway uh, uh, halfway prophecy. Deuteronomy 18, 1 Thessalonians 5, other passages indicate we're to test the prophets and God's standard is if they prophesy something falsely, then I did not send them. It's not just I didn't send that prophecy. You reject the prophet as a whole. And so if we realize that the office of prophet and apostle has ceased, they're a foundation, we don't even have to mess with that anymore. Second, it encourages us that God has not shortchanged us with the Bible. It is completely adequate for everything we need in life. Second Peter chapter 1 says the Bible gives to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We don't need any more information than the Bible. Second Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work not barely equipped or almost equipped for most good works, but complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so there isn't anything we need beyond the Bible to equip us for Christ's kingdom. And part of my mission is to teach the kingdom principles for every area of life. So the second application is God has not shortchanged us. Peter, the apostles, and the prophets continue to speak. They speak through this foundation that God has given to us. A third difference this makes is it forces us to take more seriously the study of the Bible. Too many people rely upon their subjective feelings to contradict the Scripture. Now, that's not to say God does not, you know, work with us subjectively. And I believe He does. I believe He leads His people. That's not the question. The only question is, this is the only infallible document and we need to take it seriously. We need to study the Bible. 
Now, let me point out something that may be new to you. The Apostle Paul, even when he was talking to the Corinthians, who had prophets, who had all kinds of, uh, of people in that foundational uh, block there, even when he was giving new revelation, he wanted them to realize that they could not add any foundation stones to those that God had already established. Once they died, there were no more foundation rocks. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. That you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. Now, those are pretty radical words. He is indicating there that even the Corinthians in the first century were not supposed to add one word to the words that were being spoken by the 120 foundation stones. They weren't to add one single word. No more foundation stones were needed, not even from Corinth. If they wanted to learn something, they could go to the 120 prophets. Actually, um, yeah, the 120 prophets, to what they had spoken, what they wrote. And so Paul's admonition that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. And then lastly, if God was establishing the new Israel, then we should expect continuity between the Old and the New Testaments. We should expect that God does not have two peoples and two scriptures and two ways of salvation like some people teach. Instead, we would assume the opposite. There's a unity of scripture, a unity of his people. There is a unity of salvation. In fact, I've given one of the handouts in your... In your um, and your packet there uh, shows how the, even the names that are used for the church and for Israel are the same. They're identified as, uh, as the same people. God doesn't have two brides. He's got one bride. He doesn't have two olive trees. He's got one olive tree. Not two vineyards, not two fields. They're one and the same people. And that means that we need to take seriously the kingdom principles that God has given in the Old Testament. What was the only Bible that the apostles used in the book of Acts? It was the Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament that they could be referring to. That wasn't written for quite some time. And so Paul said, check everything I'm saying. I'm teaching everything from the Old Testament. Check it out. And they were Bereans. They looked in the scriptures and they saw, yep, everything that Paul says was right. There was a unity uh, in the uh, plans of God and in his kingdom. So don't toss out the Old Testament. In fact, you know that blank page that's between Malachi and Matthew that separates the Old and the New Testaments? That wasn't added there by God. It was added by man. I mean, you could rip that out and you won't offend God at all, I can assure you. Now, we've been taking this first chapter rather slowly. And it's been on purpose because what you believe about chapters 1 and 2 will affect your view of the rest of the book. Now, this really, even though this was a heavy, heavy sermon, this is an exciting book. It's a foundational book for our faith. And as in the coming months, you begin to start understanding the kingdom principles, I hope it puts a fire under you. I hope it energizes you and causes you to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for him. Amen? Amen. To God be the glory. Father God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that you would make us students of it. That uh, even as those who dig for silver and for gold, we would dig into your word. And Father, even the sweat and the uh, tired muscles that went into those who searched for gold and silver, you have said in Proverbs, we must have that same kind of pain and diligence and perseverance in studying your word. Help us, Father, to be a people of the book who love it 
and uh, delight when we find treasures that we can dig out of it. And I pray, Father, that as we understand your word and apply it by the powering of your Holy Spirit, that uh, you would do great and awesome things through this tiny congregation. May we indeed be a Gideon's congregation uh, to accomplish much to your glory. But, Father, whether our place is small or whether it is large, we care not if you are glorified. That is our chief desire, to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. And we pray that that would be true. In Jesus' name, amen.